as well as teaching on some seminars Thursday, Wednesday, and Thursday night. So it would be nice if you could maybe catch some of those services. Tonight it's a privilege to be in the house of the Lord. It always is to come together and look out and see people of like precious faith. I want you to turn or be turning to 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter. Uh, read the first about six verses tonight for our Bible study. I might say aforehand that this is really not one of my favorite subjects because sometimes it digs around the roots of where we live and of the possibilities of where we could be but for the grace of God and for the extended hand of God and for our willingness to fasten our hand in the hand of the Savior. It also gives us a brief glimpse of the fact that many are going to lose their grip upon the Savior. I thought as we sang that song while ago, Jesus, I'll never forget what you've done for me. Jesus, I'll never forget how you set me free. And when we sing that, I believe we mean it. But there's countless numbers of people that have forgotten already what Jesus has done for them and how he set them free. And I suppose if the Bible is true... Down to the letter, there will be countless thousands more that have known the goodness and the blessings of God that find themselves in a forgetful mood or nature. And so we're going to read those and then draw some comments from it. Second chapter, beginning at the first verse. Now we beseech you, brethren, the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Thessalonica concerning some of the things they were troubled about. So he wants to set them at ease with that. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now already in the early churches after Paul had established them there had moved in individuals that was operating and prophesying by what they called the Spirit. Of course, we realize there's two spirits, the Holy Spirit and the unholy spirit that operates in the world. And also, many have come with supposedly a word. And then many came to the church of Thessalonica with a letter as if it was from the Apostle Paul, bearing many erroneous statements concerning the day of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul is meeting these things. He is in prison. He cannot visit the church. So he sits down and he writes to them. And he says this, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above, above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was with you, I told you these things. Refreshing their memory as to the fact that he told them, and it should have been settled in their mind, and they should not have been shaken in their mind concerning the events that the Apostle Paul said must come, some of the things that would appear on the scene before the coming of the Lord. I want to focus tonight upon the third verse as he said, Let no man deceive you by any means. 
That means either by a spirit, somebody supposedly under the inspiration of the spirit, or someone with a, a word of prophecy, supposedly under the influence of the spirit, or asked by a letter, or whatever, concerning the day of Jesus Christ, he, or his soon return. And he gives a lot of things here that will take place before the coming of the Lord. But he mentions, first of all, that there must be a falling away first. And that word falling away comes from the Greek word aphistema. Aphistema, which means to withdraw or to absence oneself. Now, Moffat in his translation sees it as desertion. Or as desertion as from the army of God. Or in other words, having lost the vision of what the war is about. Having lost the vision of the rewards of winning the battle or the war. Having lost the vision of the tragedy that would be in losing the war. Or having lost what would happen and who would be affected by our desertion from the army of God. As to our wives, our, our children, our husbands, our family, and our friends. Having lost the vision of that. And many of us fail to see that when God calls us, he places us in an army and we really have a fight on our hands. It's hard to fight a war effectively unless we realize we're in one. I think God's people need to wake up and realize that certainly we are in a battle. A battle for our lives, a battle for our minds, a battle most of all for our souls. And the Apostle Paul is talking to them first as if there will be a desertion are falling away now. When placed in its proper perspective, this type of message that I'm going to give becomes very unpopular because it's kosher for God's people to place it on saints. And certainly it's kosher for uh, especially denomination to place it on another denomination. But before you can fall away from somewhere, you must have been there. So evidently it is not talking about sinners, for they have never been any place to fall away. They have never been to God to fall away from God. They have never been introduced into the army of God or placed there in order to desert from the army of God. So naturally the Apostle Paul is addressing not only the church of Thessalonica, but he is addressing the modern day churches of today, his church, spirit-filled church of God, and addressing people that one time have come in and embraced the plan of salvation and have, have uh, had all the benefits of salvation and then become somewhere, somehow enticed with the things of this world and absence oneself. Now, we're not talking about going AWL because we have a lot of Christians that supposedly in the church and they should have prominent roles there that go AWL once in a while. Amen? In other words, they deserve their post to duty and then all once here they come back. We're not talking about them. We're talking about somebody that deserts completely. That forgets what they're in the battle for. Forgets why they've been introduced into the army in the first place and lose a vision of what they're fighting the battle for. You know, when we were first introduced into this thing, the power of the Holy Ghost, we saw it as a fight. We enjoyed the blessings of God, but it wasn't too long until we saw it as a fight. 
and we had a vision, and we knew exactly what we were fighting for, and we knew inside the rewards of winning. In other words, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was somewhere, somewhere right in front of us, and we could almost embrace it, and could almost taste the water and the wine, and almost taste the hidden manna that he said was ours. And then we have forgotten sometimes about the tragedy of losing. What's going to happen if we desert and lose the battle? And we forget most of all that when we do desert from the army of God, we're not the only ones that's affected. There has many individuals that pinned their hopes upon the life that you live, that have depended on you for prayers of intercession, that has depended on you to fight the battle. And some way in our weirdness, we forget those that have been affected, perhaps a wife, whose husband has interceded, or a husband whose wife has interceded, a family or friends or what have you. Now there's many reasons for desertion from the army of God. Many reasons, and we'll not go into all of them, but I would like to mention what I feel like is the three most prominent reasons for deserting the army of God. In other words, uh, becoming part of the apostasy, great apostasy, that the Bible said would come. Now, this is not an excuse. You see, many churches today look around like we could use it and look at our empty views and say, well, the Lord said that there'd come a time like this. But he didn't say it for an excuse. He said it for a warning. A warning that you and I must watch our lives as well as pray and intercede for somebody else's and don't lose the vision that came when we were freshly filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep that precious vision inside of you. But now there's several reasons people deserve. Having come to God, introduced, inducted into the army of God, and here's the three most prominent reasons. Not wanting to discipline or subject oneself to any more hardships. You see, a Christian comes in and God faces him for a while. He just feels the blessings of God in that soul. And then after a while, like Job, he just tears down the tents and asks the devil if he's considered his servants. And in other words, God is challenging the devil to try us. And so the fence is down. And we've endured hardships. We've underwent mockery. We've endured many, many things. And people become weary. And discipline in the army is a hard thing. I think almost anybody that's in the army would tell you that there's a lot of things that they seem to demand of you that doesn't seem to be necessary. A whole lot of things that I've been in there and others have been in there that you think is just completely done. In other words, they should not even be in there. But all of that is for a reason. That's to bring about a disciplined army. And an army that is not disciplined is an army of losers. All you've got to do anymore is almost go out and check our armies today. There's no discipline. There's no fear in it whatsoever. And I would have to really get on my knees if we were to get in a, a world war, so to speak, now as to what we got supposedly defending ourselves. Of course, discipline has gone out the window, and people don't want to subject themselves to hardships. Another thing is rebellion. Rebellion against rules and regulations are simply designed to protect oneself in combat. You undergo the rigors of training. When I was in the Army, we had 17 weeks of hard training. 
crawling under lying machine gun fire, digging foxholes, so to speak, and had so much time to dig them in until, and, and a way to dig them that they had to be digged before they turned the tanks loose and had them to come and run right under the top of you. And all of these things, you say it's foolish, but it prepared you for combat. We trained in the swamps of Louisiana because at that time we were still fighting Japan in the islands. And they trained us, subjected us to many hardships. We wondered, why is that? And many times people get tired of rules, tired of regulation, and God's rules, and God's regulation is designed only to protect us in the time of battle when the devil attacks us. If we had felt and known the hardships of what battle was all about, then it wouldn't be any, any problem at all to repulse the powers of hell. But true to form, and it has been for years, and we say oft times rebellion, we say oft times that this is not rebellion or that's not rebellion, but against any rules, regulations that God demands of us is rebellion. And then I think the thing that really takes most of its toll is just plain tired and weary. Having fought the battle for a long time, having pinned hopes on prayers for loved ones that you were thinking would come in sometime, and five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years of fighting and of struggling is still no change. And we're subject to throw up our hands and say, well, if they don't care, why should I? And the first thing you know, not intending to, a man, a woman, boy, or girl that has ever known Jesus never really intends to turn his back on him. But the devil is smart enough to know that he cannot take God away from you all at once, but he can begin to move things and increase them and increase them until finally a man can believe a lie and be damned. The Bible says he can. And if we're not careful, we become weary and tired. And when we do, we won't pray like we ought to pray. We won't intercede like we ought to intercede. We won't witness like we ought to witness. And we won't attend the house of God the way we ought to attend the house of God. And many of these things we take for granted as if God is always going to be there. But the Bible says there will come a time when he will withdraw himself. Not wanting discipline, rebellion against rules and regulations, just plain tired and weary of fighting and struggling against the things of this world. Throwing up our hands and saying, well, if they don't care, neither do I. But we need to realize this. Our nation wasn't found and built upon this type of thinking, and neither is the kingdom of God. In our nation, they had people that underwent the rigors of training and fighting and fought the battle and was willing to die. And when was no rebellion in the ranks, whatever they said to do, that they did. And certainly did not think from the weariness, the kingdom of God must be fought for. We must some way realize that there is a reason in our life, and we must not let go of the things that we embrace one time. Because the kingdom of God is within us among us, and we must grasp it and realize that God Almighty has set us in it and give us an armor. Friend, there's not a, an army in this world that has armor like you and I have it. And the Bible tells us to put it on. You see, God provides it, but He will not clothe you. 
In other words, he's telling us and laying on us and telling us that we're not fighting just a little bit of holding action, that we have an artillery that is strong. He's telling us that flesh and blood we don't fight against. It would be easy for us to fight against somebody with this but our enemy not being of this world, we're fighting against something we can't see. Something that we don't even recognize when it comes and takes charge of us. We're fighting against principalities. Ever demon force of hell is turned loose on a Christian life the moment he embarks upon the journey of Christianity. And especially when God inducts him in his army, every force of hell is arrayed against him. In other words, you have made an enemy out of the devil. And he has in his charge demon forces, angels that fell with him, and he was cast down from heaven. A third of them fell with him. And certainly, you being a child of God, and he hates God, so naturally, in order to hurt God and do the most damage, he gets to the thing God loves the most, and that's you and I today. He still loves us. Him so much, and he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, God loves that much. And the more God loves, the more your enemy hates. And you are the best avenue in the world to get to God. God hurts when he sees you deceived by the devil. God hurts when he watches you. Sometimes with a demonic force and another time. You cannot cope 
wickedness in high places and against rulers of the darkness, rulers of the spirit world. And let me tell you something in case you don't know it. When the devil has designs upon you, and he usually picks it when we're at our lowest ebb, and when he has designs on you, he's not going to send a general to do the work of a book private if he can do it. And he'll send this if this doesn't work. He'll just go right on up the order. And each one has more power and is greater than the other one. Until finally, until finally you either fall or you withstand it all. And I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord that there is ability and the power of the Holy Spirit. He is greater than the highest archangel of the devil and his and then it's not something we have to go from heaven. It's something that well, in his hand of us, right here, lives every day, and combat the powers of hell every day. If we let him. I said, if we let him. But this gives you a glimpse of the devil, and you're not just talking about one one demon force. You're talking about somebody that rules the dark kingdom. Where they're at, I have no idea. Some say that they're down below. And I would say this, I think they cloud. I think they cloud the air that we breathe. I think they enter into our homes. I think they go to with us to work. I think they come to church services. I think they surround us and are everywhere. And I don't think we're saved other than by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. But we need to realize when we fight, this is who we're fighting. And you cannot do it by yourself. There is the story, and I'm sure you've heard it. Where the devil is sitting down on the sidewalk crying. Somebody comes up and says, well, what's the matter with you? And he says, why, these Pentecostal people is blaming me for everything. And we say that as a joke. But most of us do blame him for a lot of things, really, that is not his fault. Primarily, maybe at first, because he created or maybe what he is. But oftentimes, we are fighting against the flesh. I mean, a damn nature. I mean, this that we live in. And we need to be aware that this flesh is rebellious. And this place is sadistic. And this place do, does not want to correspond with the will of God. The Bible says the place is enmity to the spirit. It's against the spirit. And so you have a battle every day when you wake up with yourself in the morning. Your flesh is fighting your spirit. First Corinthians, I believe 9.27, Paul says he buffets. In other words, he disciplines his body and brings it under subjection. He said, I do this lest after I preach to others, I myself should become a castaway. Those are the Apostle Paul's words. In other words, he's saying, every day I have to get up and bring old Paul under subjection. I've got to get Paul of Tarsus out of the way enough to let the Apostle Paul live. And we have to get ourselves out of the way enough to let the spiritual avenues of God be open. But a lot of times we say, oh, you know the saying, the devil made me do it. 
didn't have anything to do with it, really. Except for the first, whenever he made Adam, Adam and Eve fall, and taken on, since then we've lived in the Adamic nature. And we have simply just succumbed to what flesh wanted to do. Is that simple? And really, you can't blame anybody but yourself. Because we fail to realize that we are at war against this flesh. And we have to live in it, but we still have to fight against it. We're at war against this world. Now, you couldn't tell it as popular as Christians once believe nowadays. You couldn't tell there was any animosity between Christians and the world. They almost all look alike, talk alike, and almost all are alike. Amen, Brother Hostoff. And we are at war against the world. In other words, the uh, world order comes from the word cosmos, which means order or system. John 16, Jesus, after telling of the trial and tribulations uh, of offenses that's coming from the world uh, system, closes the chapter with these words. In the world you shall have tribulation. But, he says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. <laughs> Hallelujah. And because he overcame, I'm an overcomer through Christ Jesus. And I have to realize that's my enemy. If I don't know it's my enemy, I'm not going to fight. And most of us have never been aware. Some of us have never been aware that flesh is our enemy, that the world system is our enemy. And oftentimes we've never raised up a swamp against it. Allowing the powers of hell to take care of the schools is number one issue. We didn't realize we were what was at war against this system. And we're just letting this humanistic view just running our schools, coming into our churches, and churches of such state of life. Not because they were from Christian, but because they didn't realize that they should have been at war with the system of the world. That's trying to dominate and destroy and relegate God the secretary of fourth place. I can't come out. I pray, aren't you glad for Jesus Christ that's number one in hearts and life and souls of individuals? And then keep him there with all the power that there is in you. Keep him there. Let's worship the Lord as humans. And let's ask him, God, keep us on the fire line. And make us realize that we do have to fight against this system. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Woo, glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. And then we're fighting a battle that's going to be climaxed the last thing. We're at war against death. Against death. I don't mean, now I know people are fighting for death. I know the long lives are, are the thing that people are wanting. And, uh, what was constantly on uh, search for the fountain of youth and people have searched for it since. And uh, they've got a system that they claim, I just read it, I read it some years ago, but I just read it here later, that they claim it is almost perfected. And I can't think of the name of that. It sounds something like cryonics. But anyway, it's where when a person dies, he wills his body to be frozen immediately. And freezing that body and keeping it that way until they find a cure for the disease they have. And then, of course, there should be ways, they say, almost perfected, where they can then thaw out that body and make it live again and produce that cure 
and it'll be whole. You see, this is not a fairy tale. This is actually happening. Man's mind is conceiving these things. You say it's impossible. Well, I would have thought a few years ago had it been impossible to go to the moon had they're there. I don't say anybody's got life in their hands but God. But man has made astounding strides in the medical profession and he's linked to lives and God only knows when he keeps messing around with the organs of the body what he's going to produce, I don't know. He's liable to come up with a monster of some type that God doesn't intervene. What I'm trying to say is man has always fought against death. And we've never, never had the equipment to win. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. In other words, we're fighting against that. In other words, tonight, friend, I'm up here expounding the word of God because I'm fighting to live forever. I don't need to live forever in this body. I may have to go to the grave if Jesus doesn't come. And I'm fighting for eternal life tonight. I'm fighting and pleading the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. So if I lay down in the grave, I won't have to stay there and the trumpet of God's hands. I'm fighting for life. At all times we're not careful. We lay down desert from this. And many of us feel like, what's the use? It'll never happen anyway. But when you fight for these things, you need to be aware of this. When this warfare exists, and when you're inducted in God's army, the first thing that happens is you find the opposition of friends in the village. We don't like this. And we wonder if we've done something wrong. But we haven't. Jesus said, talking about his wounds, he said, I got these wounds in the house of my friend. And he said in Psalms 41, 9, talking about Judas prophesying about him, as he said, yea, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And you see, when Judas came and planted that kiss of betrayal upon the cheek of Jesus, what did Jesus say? Why do you come, friend? Even with a kiss of betrayal on his cheek, Jesus still called Judas. Well, what happens really? Let's, let's read this verse. Matthew 10, 4 to 36. As he says, Think not that I have come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be there them of his own house. How Jesus is not saying, I just really sadistic enough that I came to divide homes. And he was realistic enough to know that if somebody accepted God and the other individual there didn't, there was immediately an enmity between them. And immediately there was an adhesion, an adhesion in beliefs. And there was a condemnation. Friend, when you live a Christian life, and you're living it in there, your spouse or your mate, or your father, your mother, mother, or father-in-law doesn't live that life, there is immediate condemnation of your presence. And they'll begin to resent you. And peace cannot be there until you either go back into the world and adapt to the same climate they are, or they come and adapt to the climate that you are. They were only there 
there, can there be peace there? With all this be divisions, as long as one member embraces Christianity and the other doesn't. There'll always be a division. They won't be the peace. But we're in a war. Now, how do we fight this war? How do we fight this war? Well, there's a lot of different ways, and I don't think I've got time tonight to go over them all. But let's see if we can extract from here some of the best ways in the world to carry on the war. Number one, you carry it on with faith and good conscience. In other words, you've got to have faith in your teaching. You've got to have faith in your church, faith in your pastor, faith in your Sunday school teachers, and faith in the cause for which you are fighting for. Regardless of how it looks, as far as a carnal mind is concerned, you've got to have faith in the cause that you are fighting for. You cannot fight an effective battle or wage an effective war unless you believe in the cause. Look at Vietnam. Look at Korea. You couldn't fight that war effectively because the soldiers could not believe in the cause. But friend, we have the greatest cause on the face of this earth, and that's to redeem and bring redemption to mankind and gain eternal life and save a million souls if possible from the powers of hell. And we have to have a good conscience in our actions. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.19, to hold at most two things. Faith and good conscience. And then he goes on and cites some how to make shipwreck of those two things. And when you lose faith in what you're fighting for, and conscience of your actions and why you're doing it, then you're headed for the reef and the rocks. The Apostle Paul said that. And then there's steadfastness. Something that I think ought to be ground in the heart and core of every child of God and in every church is that we have to be steadfast. The Bible tells us that in the last days God Himself is going to shake everything that is shakable so that with that which is unshakable shall remain. And we've got to be steadfast in the mountain, steadfast in the valleys, steadfast when things are going good, and steadfast when things are going bad. We've got to hold to it and believe it. And grasp hold of it. Friend, we went too far. As long as we've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord. And if there was a time, there needs to be a steadfastness. It's in your day and mind, the powers of hell are trying to rule, are trying to ruin, are trying to slacken your grip, trying to get you to doubt the thing that you fought for all this time. And lack of steadfastness hinders our spiritual growth. When you look at an individual and they are wishy-washy and they are here today and gone tomorrow in the belly grubs and on the mountaintops and all of this and don't have faith to stabilize them, I'll show you a baby. I'll show you somebody that hasn't grown. I'll show you somebody that hasn't remained steadfast. And it mars our usefulness. If you're not steadfast in what you believe in the kingdom and cause of Christ, it mars your usefulness. And it's a stumbling block. And more than anything else, if you're not steadfast, it does away with your spiritual joy. Spoils the joy that you have in Christ Jesus. 
You know, it took a long time for me to realize that tears could be in these eyes and this flesh could be sorrowful for many of the things that happened around me. And I could moan as far as flesh was concerned. And it took a long time for me to realize that in spite of the outward show of this place, I could still have joy on the inside of knowing that my God was still alive. And he was still on the throne. And he was still ruler. I could have joy inside, flooding my soul. While the flesh was weeping and crying and mourning and downhearted, inside there was a spirit inside of me that says, thank God for the blood. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Thank God for His power. Thank God for the joy and salvation that's in my life. You see, we're not measured. We're not measured by what we look like on the outside. We're measured by what we hold on the inside. And not being steadfast spoils our spiritual joy. You see, people, it's not joyous. Which one was it cried out? I believe it was the psalmist David said, Restoring to me. The joy of thy salvation. In other words, he was slipping just a little bit. Steadfastness wasn't there anymore. He had been promised he was a king and he was running for his life. And when he got to God, and when he began to move in God, something began to stir inside. And that joy that he had before was still there. In spite of Saul, in spite of him running for his life, and in spite of him hiding in the cave. Can you imagine this king? God said he was king. God said he was supposed to be. But here he is, running for his life. Afraid to show his face. Living in caves. And the Bible records even one man uh, run alongside of him, hating him so much that he threw rocks at him. And the man that was with him wanted to kill him. And David said, leave him now. I'm still king. I'm still king, he said. In spite of I'm, at, I'm in this cave, I'm still king. In spite of being hunted by Saul, I'm still king. And I think we ought to adapt the same avenue. In spite of how I feel today, in spite of where I am today, in spite of what the powers of hell is doing for me, I'm still a child of the living God. I'm still his son. I am racing and I hold it. I still belong to him. In spite of where I'm living, in spite of where, where I have to dwell right now, I'm still a child of God. Hallelujah. Circumstances don't alter who we are. I'm going to say it again. Circumstances don't alter who you are. If you're a pauper, you're still a child of God. If you're sick and afflicted, you're still a child of God. If you're misrepresented, and, and if you're mocked and shocked, you're still a child of God. And if God seems to be a million miles away, you still belong to Him. You're still His child. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Steadfastness. Watch ye therefore, Paul tells the Corinthian church. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Then we ought to fight with earnestness and with watchfulness against dangers from without and dangers from within. Stay with me. Don't get tired of what I'm trying to say because you'll need it tomorrow. If you don't need it then, you'll need it the next day. Because we are in a battle. And every one of us have been tempted to lay down the armor, sit down on our seat, and don't do any more. Desertion from the army of God. Never really intended to, but got carried away with the tide. Got carried away with having to uh, be bent by the, uh, the laws and all of this. 
but earnestness and watchfulness. We need to watch for opportunities to be useful. We need to watch for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things. Jude tells us this. Beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. In other words, friend, there's no time to slack. You've got to hold up the cross of Calvary. You've got to proclaim the gospel. You've got to tell people they need to be indwelt with His precious spirit and earnestly contend, fight for the faith. You've got to do it earnestly. And then you've got to fight with watchfulness and with sobriety. Peter says, be sober, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, has a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. He'll walk down every pew. He'll walk down every aisle. He'll stop and look in the heart and core of every soul that's here and measure your spiritual life and see if you're ready for the kill yet. And he's doing that right now to many of us. Maybe he's doing that to all of us. It's not a day goes by of what he doesn't major, your major, or measure your spiritual temperature to see exactly what state you're in so he can get the, the crippling blow and eventually deliver the death blow. And Peter says, be sober. Be vigilant. Your adversary didn't say he was a lion. Just said he act like it. He'll skew you to death, but he's seeking whom he may devour. Also tells you to uh, fight with the endurance of hardness. We lose a lot that the world has to offer us, but we gain untold riches in the other world. Paul tells Timothy again to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's sometimes things are not right. Get out and go out on bivouac sometime. Like Brother Earl has to do, and like a lot of it, pitch that tent, let the tent fall in on you, let water come in on you, and all of this, and, and hardness that's there. A soldier's life is not easy. You don't live in a palace. You, you live in a tent. You don't wear a crown yet. You carry a gun, an armor. You carry a sword. And he tells you to endure hardness as a good soldier. And then we have to fight with self-denial and temperance. In other words, discipline of our thoughts, discipline our emotions, discipline our words and our ways. Paul, again, advocates discipline of the body when he says, For every man that striveth, for the mastery is temperate, are disciplined in all things. In other words, if we're striving for something, we have to discipline ourselves. And it has to be fought with prayer. The Bible says, praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit. And last but not least, this battle to be fought effectively has to be fought without earthly entanglements. And a lot of us sometimes are reduced to our weakest stage because we're trying to fight a battle and being entangled with the things of the world. Paul tells Timothy again, 1 Timothy 2 and 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. In other words, we've got to shake off, lay aside all these things and realize there is but one goal that we seek to reach. 
And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's but one climax we're looking for. And that's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's but one thing that we're living for. And that's to have eternal life. There's but one thing that we're destined for. As Christians and soldiers of God. And that's to deliver the kingdom of God. But in spite of all of this. Very few times. I believe the United States of America used to know that when they went into battle, they'd already won. They fought like that. And we've got an edge as soldiers of God to know this, that we may have to fight, but we do know we've already been victorious. That's the thing sometimes that keeps us going. We've been victorious over the devil. 1 Corinthians 16, 20 says this, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your heel shortly. Oh, thank God. He's going to bruise him under your heel shortly. In other words, he's already whipped. And there is victory over the flesh. Romans 7, 27, 24, the apostle Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? In other words, he said, I'm living in this flesh. The things I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those things I do. And it's not no more I that do it, but the sin that dwelleth within me. In other words, he was a miserable man. And he says, I'm a wretched man. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. As he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. How is deliverance from this body of death? Galatians 5.24 says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and its lust. And there's victory over this world system. 1 John 5, 44 says, This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Believe that he's the flesh, the sacrificed lamb, and we overcome. We overcome this world system by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And there is ultimate victory over death. 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul cries out these immortal words that ring down through the quarters of time to our day when he says something very pertinent to us as he said, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Hallelujah. And I think we can shout that tonight. Oh, death, where is thy sting? I'm not afraid of you anymore, death. You don't hold a worse sting for me anymore. And grave, you used to hold everybody that was placed in there before Jesus come. There wasn't any hope. There wasn't any resurrection. Man was planted in the ground and there he stayed. And when Jesus was, was crucified and buried and put in the heart of the earth three days and three nights and he come again out of the grave thank God he came out victorious over death hell in the grave and he said because I live ye shall live also hallelujah there's no victory in the grave anymore it can't hold God's people they're going to come out at the sound of the trumpet hallelujah is all Hallelujah. Sometimes we forget 
what is the reward to be? What is it? Well, I don't think I've got them all. But you get to eat of the hidden man. Hallelujah. You get to eat of the tree of life. You get to be clothed with white linen. You get to be pillars in the temple of God. You get to sit with Christ on his throne. You're going to have a white stone in the new name written on that white stone. You get to have power over the nation. You get to have God as your God. You get to have him as the morning star. You get to inherit all things. You get to be the sons of God. You're not going to be heard of the second death. No chance of having your name blotted out of the book of life. You get to inherit eternal life. Hallelujah. And on and on you can go.